Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. As I've mentioned um, many times before on this podcast, there was an entire industry of independent internet service providers that popped up in the 1990s to help get Americans online. Sure, the online services like AOL and Prodigy eventually became de facto ISPs, but the truth is, a large percentage, possibly the majority of Americans, would eventually get online for the very first time thanks to local, often mom-and-pop ISPs that sprung up around North America and allowed users to dial in, surf the web, send email, etc., So, of course, I've wanted to delve deeper into this phenomenon for a while, and thus I was absolutely thrilled when Michael March contacted me and said that he was a fan of the show and wanted to share the story of Internet Direct, a company that he co-founded, which was one of the first ISPs in Arizona, based in the Phoenix area. And so in this episode, Michael not only relays the story of his particular company, but also the economics and the strategies of the independent ISP market, and also the realities of competing with the likes of AOL, and of course, the inevitability of the coming of broadband. Please enjoy this story that I believe has been largely undercovered up until now. Michael March, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thank you. Uh, so since you're uh, a, a recent listener, you sort of know the format. Let's start out with uh, sort of geek bona fides. Uh, <laughs> uh, tell me about the your first computer or the first few computers that you had growing up. Sure, sure. Uh, so, um, so first computer – so first of all, I was computer deprived for years. So mm. I, I – <laughs> So uh, when a lot of my uh, uh, friends, like um, I had a friend, his father's into it. And so when I finally got, you know, it seemed like I was late in the game, but I bought my first computer TI-994A back when Bill Cosby was the spokesman for it, uh, if that <laughs> long time ago. Uh, and yeah. then uh, went into the Commodore uh, Commodore 64. Mm-hmm. And the, but, but, but I would say the computer that really kind of brought me into uh, a, a more um, the one that kind of broke it out for me was the Amiga 1000. Uh, is you know as people know is the first one that had um, true multitasking and a Unix-like operating system. Mm-hmm. And so those are the ones. But I guess the biggest thing uh, that kind of per- pertains to uh, later what what I would be doing is um, in the in the in the mid '80s, someone in Phoenix here owned a HP 2000 and HP 3000 time-sharing system in his office. So I don't know how it was, but some some man in town here named Ed Sharp uh, he had a a multi-user uh, BBS ran on this big uh, computer uh, called it was called System X, and that's where I think a a lot of us here in Arizona got into multi-user being online so uh, he had a pretty big uh community here here in phoenix and that kind of really you know that was where you could uh he had a full um a full programming environment uh and i was like uh, you know like 13 or so but it was pretty big uh, me and, and and some friends were on it and that's where 
I think the taste for being online and being able to create programs and content really started, I guess. So let's underline that you're, um, you're in Arizona, uh, Phoenix. Yep. So yes, yes. Um, it's not like computers are rare, but then again, you're not like growing up in Silicon Valley, basically. Exactly. You, you know, that's a theme like we're so close now via plane ride, but so far away. Uh, yeah, it, it's, you know, um, there's a pretty vibrant uh, computing uh community here but you know we probably were uh, a few months down the line from what was going on there for sure so what about um so this is the the uh, the mid the late 80s uh, what about um uh bbs's and things like that you say you get your start with this timeshare system but are, are there also you know local bulletin board systems yeah in Arizona? so yeah actually i mean there are a lot of good thriving i mean i would kind of put um in fact phytonet one of the first mail, um, one of the one of the first email relay um, uh, systems for for BBSs was invite was invented here. I believe my friend's brother wrote it or co-wrote it. Um, so yeah, very big here. And in fact, you know, uh, I co-wrote uh, a BBS that ran on the Commodore uh, Commodore sixty four. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like who probably everyone did at one point. Uh, and when I say Koro, I probably did like minor stuff to it. My, my, uh, friend did most of that, but yeah, really into that. Um, and yeah, so, so that was actually pretty big here. I would say I would, you know, uh, I, I, uh, crap on my state a lot, but when it comes to, when it comes to the BBS scene, I think we were as good as anybody. For sure. you, you know, it's funny when you look at um, the the BBS sort of like as a as an industry almost. Um, it was almost more rural than not rural, you know, because it was about like people in the sticks uh, connecting with each other and things like that. And like, I, I don't have any hard numbers on this. I'm sure I could find them somewhere, but I feel like um, it was almost outside of the big cities was was sort of the heartland for BBSs. Yeah, yeah, and and. And I think Arizona, I, and this is kind of a trope, but it's kind of true, very kind of a pioneering type thing here, uh, you know, uh, when very vibrant um, political type things. Yeah, so, so I mean, it was definitely, I would say, you know, I've had, you know, friends who, who like, lived, lived in the Midwest and on the East Coast, West Coast, and I would say, you know, like, Arizona really stacks up. Um, yeah. And, and, and that, and that kind of thing helped me, you know, in my whole kind of, uh, you know, what I plan to do. So, um, you're, uh, you're active on BBSs, trading files, um, uh, talking to people. Are you also exposed to early, uh, online services like, like <laughs> Prodigy, CompuServe? Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I am, um, my thing was doing the trial of CompuServe. I never paid for it, ever. I would do the <laughs> trial, and I probably did the trial. Like I, I probably, <laughs> I probably uh, every loophole and getting that extended, or whatever. So I never paid for CompuServe, and I never really found it super interesting either. Um, just the fact it was so. It was a even back then compared to what I did with my uh, when I had my own. When I had my own bulletin board or that other uh, t- time sharing thing, it was a very curated type environment, and it was very 
uninteresting, you know, um, but I did it all the time. So, you know, anytime I could get a free trial, like when I bought something, whatever, I, I do it, ran out and that, that was it. So that was the extent, um, of my, or sometimes if you recall some products to get help on them, they had a form on CompuServe, right? Right. Yeah. So I do that, that big, but it was purely, yeah, I'm sorry. That was a, that was a big deal for them is, um, that they made a lot of money that way, actually just hosting uh, customer service forums for various companies. Yeah. So, and that was, so that, that, that was forced, uh, but I really did not. Yeah. Was not my th- thing really. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, um, you go to college, uh, late eighties, like, um, 89, 90 or whatever is, um, is that too early to, um, to have internet in college or, or what was that? No, I mean, that was actually, that, that was it. Uh, so when I got there, um, college for many things about it, uh, I had a horrible time, um, for many reasons, but the thing that part of my early obsession was internet access. So, um, so the first thing is, is when you are in the engineering program there, um, and I don't think it mattered what type of engineering, they you would do some kind of a programming class. It would either be, uh, it, it it was either I believe Pascal or Fortran, right? Depending on what 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 college you're in, right? This is this is at the University of Arizona. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so everyone got everyone got an account on the Vax. They had a Vax. 1178 years or I forgot what the one was, but you know, what, um, and everyone had an account on there and that was within the, within the engineering program, which was pretty big. Uh, you would, uh, you know, there were, uh, a lot of people on there and, you know, people, you know, most people did their homework on it and that was it. But for a good percentage of us, it was like where you kind of hung out and I had a, I had a friend there who wrote a uh, wrote a kind of a chat game thing called um, I forgot what it's called, but basically, you know, people could start write their own their own software and and uh, games on there, and people would kind of hang out on there. And then w- there there was one thing on the Vax um, that hooked up all the Vax systems called Bitnet, and Bitnet was kind of like the internet hooked up. Um, hooked up with lease lines between each college 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 institution, mm-hmm. uh, but it was like a store and a forward thing. So the thing that kind of so uh, I I was one one night in my apartment with my friends and I had my Commodore Amiga one thousand. We had a uh, we had a uh, a digitizer there. We took a picture of us in the room. Upload it over the 2400 baud phone modem to the Vax, and then when is in the Vax, we could send it to our friend who was going to uh, going to Harvey Mudd College, hmm. and we saw that file go from node to node. It would tell you it's at this node, and it would go from each. I think it had to go like like at least five or six hops, hmm. and then he in his dorm room, he every dorm room at Harvey Mudd had a hardwired uh, 96. I'm sorry. 19.2 kilo, uh, um, uh, kilobit um, RS232 port, and he could get it at his thing. So the whole thing between us doing it was like a, probably about 30 minutes time. Mm-hmm. But it was amazing being able, you know, now which takes, you know, 
no time at all. It was amazing to be able to take that picture, upload it, put it through, watch it go through the thing, and all for, quote, free. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, that was a kind of thing that kind of really informed it. And, and so um, – and, and then there was a computer club that formed there in 90 called Hacks. And the purpose of that club was just to acquire and run computers, like multi-user ones, right? And so anytime any college was going to get rid of a server, they would get it. And that club kind of also, you know, like for people who would be – like once you were in the engineering program and you were out or that, that class, your, your VAX account would close up like that. Hacks was for people that wanted a persistent account on the internet or you know on a on a server, and that kind of also kind of got the ball there where like um, you know that club provided like a constant haven for people who are interested in 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 having an account someplace or just people who were in people who were um, interested in large computers, and that was about 1990 also around there. So you you definitely get the bug for for the internet, but just just having having access, having connectivity was was something that you you found fascinating. Ah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, whatever you, you could do, um, you know, just having. I mean, just first and foremost, having a, having an account on on some sort of a Unix like system and be able to send email and do whatever you could do. That was just. I mean, that just kind of. Uh, held my, I mean, that 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 was everything. I guess you know. <laughs> you yeah, know, it, yeah. It's huge, <laughs> for uh, sure. All right, so then um, let, let's let's go down your your entrepreneurial story then. So, does it start to occur to you that that if you're so fascinated with with having connectivity, that maybe other people would be, and maybe there there would be a business there, or tell. Walk me through how how you start uh, to think of this um, and and launch it into a business. Sure. So uh, so at I think I think it was the summer of ninety or ninety one or something like that. Or I kind of moved back to back to Phoenix for the summer, and part of it was is I um, I was um, going to write some software for, on spec for the for the county court for the county court system here they had no way to track files in any kind of way that was not tracking them on paper and they you know so my friend and I wrote that system and I took all of my college money and put it into that and then I ran out <laughs> and so it's kind of like and so and when I ran out I'm here in Phoenix and I have no internet access mm-hmm. and so I was like well What's my options? It was a going back to school, which they didn't have any money, <laughs> really. Uh, two was, uh, you know, th- there were some places where uh, uh, there was some, there was uh, in California some places that you could do it, but it would be the call would cost X amount. I mean, like you know, like calls back then across across state line was expensive, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so as we're doing this, um, you know. Uh, uh, it was like how my main thing was how am I going to get internet access? Period. And I mean that was what drove everything. Mm. Uh, and then it was well maybe and since there's no options in Phoenix, really, I mean there there were no commercial options. Like you couldn't call. I mean if somebody would have created a service to do this, 
I would have not done this. Right. right? I mean, I, I mean, and 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 that's you know my thing was I want a place to be able to read Usenet news, tell that around to uh, you know to places, uh, and do email. And if someone would have done it and it would have been a good service that I probably, you know, I would have probably done something in the internet, but I would have not have created one. But so as soon as it was clear, there was nothing there. And then I knew, and then as soon as I go, okay, I'm going to do this. And as soon as I made that commitment, I knew it was a matter of time. And it was before it'd be flooded. I mean, everyone just, you just kind of knew that, okay. It's not here. It's not really anywhere. Like there are only a, a few – like probably when we started, there was probably maybe 10 places around the country that that were what we were going to do. And so the model wasn't really set, right? Uh, and so as soon as I go, okay, we're going to do this, uh, then it was – the race was on. I mean and then we felt this – I mean you couldn't – I can tell you this pressure – to do as fast as possible to kind of you know be the first. Well, we should we should describe what you're trying to do is sure. you know the the internet has existed for several decades now at this point, but it was always in academic circles. So to have access to email, to have access to IRC or, or, or FTP or things like that, you basically had to either you know be at work or be at school to do it. So what you're describing is creating an industry that provides these services to consumers like in the home or just on an everyday basis and um so you're basically commercializing the internet which at, at this point had basically just been an, an academic tool absolutely yeah so uh yeah so like what that meant at the time and i um at the time that we wrote we wrote our business plan like winter of 92 and final publishing was 93 it was basically setting up a one server, right? Uh, that was one server that was a Unix-based server, and people could dial in uh, with their phone modem, text mode, and would get, and then we would give them a menu that would give them, well, a full shell that they want to do whatever they wanted to, pretty much, and they would get uh, to do IRC, which is the chat thing, uh, MUDs, which is the online games, um, again, all text-based, FTP. Um, and, and, uh, and email, uh, and then almost, oh, oh, I'm sorry. And, and then read, uh, Usenet news, which mm -hmm. was pretty much like, you know, uh, for people that know that was the place where internet culture kind of started, like the, the kind of rules and, you know, rules and the not rules, I guess. Um, and, and, you know, those were the bread and butter basically. And then there were things like ways. Uh, it was kind of a search thing, and there uh, and go for soonest as soon as we started, we were doing we would put a go for client, I believe, almost immediately, and a server, uh, and those were the the kind of core things. But people would kind of call in and would do those those things encompassed, you know, people, you know, being online, uh, and and you know, those were the kind of core core. The, the core services that we rolled out with. So you you describe you know writing a business plan things like that. Um, uh, did you did you go out and get funding or like actually let's let's back up for a second. Like so, sure. how difficult is this to set up? Like you, you're saying, okay, we'll just put up one server and people can dial in. Like what's 
what's the actual monetary investment, like the structural investment you have to make? You, you know, we think of today like, you know, huge server farms and all you got to do is, you know, uh, buy a rack somewhere. You know? But what, 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 what are the steps that you have to do to, to get started to do this? Sure. So uh, basically, I had worked for a company here in town that did they did you know it's funny is they were kind of like the proto uh uh proto um ads where you would dial it up and say i want phone number for pizza hut and they go oh this number is brought to you by pizza blah 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 so they would have like a it was free uh free nine uh i'm sorry free four one service but you you but you would get an ad for it, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So these people kind of had, you know, uh, and I had worked for them, and I knew the investors of that company. Um, and so between my my parents and a few of them, we got about I think twenty four or twenty two thousand dollars. That was our seat, right? Um, and, and so so like that, and so what we had to do with that was get office space by at least, well, one huge server. I mean, at the time, huge. Now it's small. You know, uh, it was a 486 with 32 gigs of RAM and mm -hmm. a port. So, you know, blah blah blah. You know, but very small now. But that back then was huge. You know, that server was like about three or four grand. This is crazy. Um, and and then, but the kind of biggest thing that was the question. You know, we had experience setting up that stuff. You know, we were always doing that. But the thing that we didn't know about. Was the other things like where to get access to the internet? So, at the time, the internet was definitely not commercial hardly at all, right? And to how you would hook up to the internet to resell was a big question mark. Uh, there was um, there was one commercial company really offering that, which was called uh, which was called um, called UUNet Technologies, and um, and they were like the main commercial kind of hub uh but very expensive and they had very strict reselling type things where like you could get a connection through them but then if you wanted to resell any kind of commercial thing then you had to sign some weird stuff and you know we you know anyways so we found a company based in palo alto called PageSat, and their main business was they provided usenet feeds so you know that you, you know the uh the 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 uh the whole forum type thing use mm -hmm. feeds over over a one-way a one-way satellite connection so when we talked to them because we wanted to have that we didn't want the usenet feed overpowering our our lease line to the internet so we did that and they go oh well we sell internet too so somehow they were they 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 got a connection into i think the well or something like that where they had a pretty good connection in palo alto and they resold us a a 56k line to phoenix now what was funny about that and, and that, that was about i think 2000 a month or something like this some or some crazy amount and i recall i was excited i go wow I'm going to be getting 56k per second downloads, and so when they hooked up the line, and I did my first test ones off of Apple, you know, FTP to Apple.com, mm -hmm. it was it was 6k per second, like, and I just it was one of those things where in my mind I kind of was off by 10, you know, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, uh, but and, you know, um, yeah, so 
So, but in general, where you got your connection from the internet was very, it was a not clear cut at all. Now it's easy. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, like there's a t- tell me places to uh, go, but back then where you could hook up and what type of agreement, if you could even resell off, it was very murky, right? And, and then, you know, just getting, you know, um, you know, our, uh, our first, our first domain name for our company indirect.com we couldn't even get it for two months because they were transferring they were forming this organization called the internet and the internet got a five-year exclusive deal on um like uh on managing the registration of domain names mm-hmm. and so we had to wait six weeks and then so we put in for it beginning of march we got it like mid to end of april um, so things that whole infrastructure of getting your name, you know, where to buy the stuff, it was not clear for a few years. And even after we moved off of PageSat, you know, uh, if you read through all like, you know, things back then, it was just a mess about, you know, who could sell internet, what it meant, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's just not right. It, it was very un very unclear there were and red tape and and um so okay so we should say that the, the company that that you start is called um uh inter internet direct okay yep. and so so the, the business model is simple you're 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 renting this or leasing this 56k line for what uh, i think you said two thousand dollars a month or something like that mm-hmm. and then you resell you allow people to dial in and then you charge them um, to, to hook into that connection. And so, so who, who are you targeting as customers? Who's interested? What are you charging them? All that stuff. Sure. Uh, so at first from a, from an actual, uh, from a consumer thing, there was some, uh, there were, there was a local computer free paper that was out every month called computer times or something like that here in Phoenix. I think it was a franchise that it was also available in other places, but I think it was tailored to each place. And we took out an ad there. Uh, and then we just took out ads, I think in, in, in the paper. And, and, and we just said, if you want internet access and we had a thing, you know, get, you know, uh, telnet, email, usenet, blah, blah, blah. And we just targeted end users pretty much right and that attracted though everybody so that was kind of our lead but we had you know all types of people and in fact when we launched we had personal accounts were 1995 a month for 20 hours mm. and business accounts i think were 30 or 35 dollars per month now you're asking yourself what's a business account well we just said if you use it for business <laughs> it's th- but it we could not enforce it. And I wasn't even really a big fan of that. Um, and, and, but a lot of people, uh, and, and I think we gave them more. So it, it wasn't that they were just charged more. We gave them, I don't know, like, I think more, uh, a, like few more hours and some more space on the disc, you know? So, so, so it wasn't a total scam, I guess. Uh, but you know, those are the two things and that's what we, that's what we launched with. But, from that point, people wanted to see about getting internet to their office, right? That and so that you know that was like the entree, and then you know people would call us to help us with anything, you know, anything to do with the internet, 
that's where it kind of launched from. So I, I have mentioned on the show before, um, but uh, this is the story that, that we're trying to get into here. For a period of time when – you're launching before the web goes mainstream, but for a period of time even after the web goes mainstream, um, the way that – first of all, it's a world where there's not internet everywhere. You, you, there's not cellular networks, cellular data networks. There's not Wi-Fi. There's, you, you have to dial in, and you're not going through your – uh, cable company yet because cable uh, modems are not a thing yet. But um, so your options on the early part of the internet are either using a service like Prodigy or AOL once they give you internet connectivity, or there were uh, like you hundreds, maybe thousands of independent ISPs that just did this, that just <laughs> you know uh, leased out these internet connections, you know, in a computer in a room somewhere, and that's how the majority of people got on the internet in America for, for the first time. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and like, uh, th that's exactly it. I mean, people would at first, you know, our first customers would go onto our server and would run some programs on our server in a text-based fashion and then would get on. But soon after that, uh, the thing that made it, you know, uh, that was that next big leap, I would say, was the um, there was a program for Windows called um, called Trumpet Windsock. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And on a few of your shows, I heard a lot of people say there was no TCP IP stack built into Windows 3. Mm -hmm. um, and that's true. And Trumpet Windsock, uh, which I you should really get this person on here because he's the un he I, I believe that he was the unsung hero here. It was a program written in Australia. I believe it was shareware, mm. right? I think twenty dollars, and it gave and it and it gave Windows three uh, TCP/IP, so people could dial in. I think first with Slip and then PPP, which is the two the two dial-up protocols, right? Uh, and they got full internet access on their PC into run whatever clients like you know whatever uh, you know when. When Mosaic came out, they would run that or any Telnet thing or Gopher client or whatever they wanted to run. You know, there were other programs that could use that. Um, you know, that was the thing that when 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 that became available, um, uh, that really made it. That was the first step to make it more mainstream than having people having to like. So, if people were running IRC. And mud, all that stuff on our server. When they switched to Trumpet Windsock, they could run those clients on their computer, right? And they got that richer type experience, you know. Uh, so like that was the thing that uh, early on, I would say late '93, early '94, Trumpet Windsock came out, and that was the thing that made Windows accessible. And in 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 you know, uh, and and then obviously. When Windows 95 came out, mm -hmm. uh, that was you know that program wasn't really it wasn't required anymore. But for any Windows 3 user, which was for a long time, mm -hmm. that was that's how people got on. There were some commercial ones that were probably better, like NetManage made one. Spry, uh, the people from Spry, made, you know, they all had their own stack also. Internet but, in a box, uh, yeah. Yeah, yep, yep. Uh, and that probably a little higher quality, uh, but. Trumpet Windsock 
if you talk to any ISP, that's the or small one, that's what they packaged, and we became experts in configuring that. We wrote our own installer for it, um, you know, and we would highly we tried to strike a deal with the, with the guy, uh, but he wanted end users to pay to pay him. Uh, so we just kind of promoted it uh, and would encourage people to pay their fees, I guess. <laughs> so let's um, let's go into just this era just briefly. Um, so this is around the you're mentioning Windows ninety five. So this is around the time when um, Mosaic and the Netscape and and the web um, really hit the mainstream. Like uh, at, at a at a ground level, all of a sudden. Is there? Do you feel the turn? Like this is something that you thought, oh, maybe there's other people like me that will want to have internet access. And then sometime in '95, '96, or your, you know, <laughs> your neighbors are asking you about internet access. Like, did did you feel that sort of tidal wave shift where all of a sudden uh, the internet and the web were a thing that that everybody wanted to be a part of? Sure. Uh, so I'll kind of back up. So as I kind of stressed before, I was fully bought in, and everyone around me. From day one, I mean, we felt that even pre-web, we felt that huge excitement, right? Now, however, so in in I believe in late '93, around uh, ASU, which is the other college here, um, uh, they had a grand opening for their computing uh, for their computing computing commons, which is their big building with all their labs and stuff, right? And they invited us to have a little booth there. Uh, and one of the students came by and we were trying to get some stuff working. We had some software, uh, and, um, he goes, you know, my roommate can help us with that. So we, so we went into his dorm room after that whole thing and he was compiling mosaic for the lip, uh, he was compiling mosaic for the Linux operating system, which was mm-hmm. pretty hard back then, uh, mm-hmm. because it was uh, super smart guy, super smart. Um, and, uh, and we saw it for the first time. So it was, I think soon after it shipped, like their first versions, we saw it and we're like, yeah. So to your point, we're like, it was that next bump or like, this is it, you know? Um, cause before that you would hear, we always heard about the worldwide web, but it was always there. The, it, it was text-based, not super interesting. Gopher seemed cooler to me than that right you know a lot of people um, a lot of people say that yeah 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 but but when when we saw dan he got it working um in his dorm room uh we're like i mean that really was the next thing we're like you know uh you know that it, it even with the first build and the first few sites like that the potential was immediate and and actually worked pretty well right um and especially when you're asu everyone has you know it's you know it's all it's as fast as it can be back then, right? Uh, yeah. So, so then, so since that point, you know, we were like everyone, kind of obsessed with making it work, and not just on that platform, but the Mac and Windows, went like that. And every build and every new version that c- came out, you know, we kind of tracked. Um, and and uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, it the the kind of pressure that I heard the other people talk about in your in your other interviews definitely felt um i mean just it 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 
to answer your question, it heightened whatever we felt any pressure to get this technology going, I guess. Well, yeah, and you had mentioned you felt even from day one that you were in a race because you, you knew this was going to happen and you, you wanted to be a part of it. Um, so what what happens when um, when it, it does mainstream and, and suddenly, you know, the, the AOLs of the world are, are, are uh, offering Internet access as well? And, and basically, I mean, AOL for all the the money that it spent on its walled garden content was was basically just a glorified ISP for most people to get on the internet. So independent ISPs, how did how did they deal with um the explosion of of consumer interest and then like competition from like from like AOL? Sure. I mean, so I was never a fan of the service by AOL. However, they did almost nothing. They were nothing but a boon to independent ISPs. In the fact that our main selling point was this is the real internet. Because if you recall the early versions of internet with their browser, it was a horrible browser. And for a while there, you couldn't even run other programs. Like they didn't even offer like a a, a WinSock interface to right. run other clients. Like you couldn't run your own browser. You, you'd run their browser, right? So and so we kind of hit people over the head again and again. If you want the real internet, come to us. And I mean, I can't tell you how many people we had that came from AOL to us. I I I don't think I don't believe we lost one client to AOL. We might have lost clients to other ISPs for, for various things, price or quality or you know phone lines that didn't pick up. You know what I'm saying? But never. AOL, from the standpoint of any ISP, was only it only got people onto the internet, and we all every, every ISP sold it as you're graduating to the quote real internet. Um, so they were nothing but good for business. Um, other things were bad for business, but AOL, CompuServe, they all were. You know, they didn't offer um, that many hours. You know, and we always kind of sold it rightly or wrongly as the dumbed down internet, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. and you mentioned um, the business model was you were charging by hour, um, which you mentioned that and I didn't pick up on it, but um, I've always heard that, like, that was the big thing that independent ISPs did to differentiate themselves is they quickly moved to um, unlimited, you know, you pay one price per month and you can go unlimited hours because that's how you differentiated from the, the hourly rates that, that AOL and, and CompuServe and other people would charge you. Did you guys do that also? Very quickly. Uh, first of all, so I just want to kind of back up and just say um, there was, we leaned on a lot of uh, software. Kind of, some of the first open source software is what our business was built on. We had to write everything though beyond, I mean like like for instance, so when you when you have an online service and you charge per hour, that means you, you that means that you have to track it and bill it, right? And it makes right. it really more complicated. It makes tracking everything becomes. And so, at some point, from 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 a standpoint of what people wanted and the marketing and just the difficulty of collecting and billing on it, we did move. We went from twenty hours. To 150 hours to to flat rate, you know, uh, very quickly. Um, I I think we kept 150 hours for a long time, just because there are some people who just keep their their phone on 24 by seven, so it gave them some pressure. And mm-hmm. if we noticed 
a person on for that long, we could turn them off without violating any terms, right? But yeah, so what you heard is, is absolutely right from the billing standpoint, because because like you know now, um, now there's so many there's so much software out there. Like if you wanted to set up a service and do reoccurring billing, there's a million things out there to do that. From PayPal to you know you know whatever Back Stripe, then, yeah, no, yeah, 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 Stripe, whatever you want to do. Back then there was no billing software that could do recurring billing under $1 million. Only phone companies and power utility, all these things, they needed that stuff. No small company needed billing. So we had to write our own billing package. And then we had to write, and then one other thing that was kind of hard to get was, was credit card processing. Now, again, they're striping us. Back then, no one billed like this on our size, right? I mean, if you were... AOL or something that you had a you had a deal with the bank I'm sure, so we had to get at first it 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 took us months to get our credit card processing, we had to put up five thousand dollars up that they held and then it was I believe it was seven percent per transaction or some crazy amount plus fifty cents it was insane and if we got two chargebacks it'd be curtains and so we had to. And, and, and then we, we had to get signed agreements from every customer who we did credit card processing for, like signed. So so it, the the way that you did credit cards back then was insane, and that got loose over time. And you know we wrote on software to to do the automatic charging at at first because there's no software to do it in an automated way. We had to hand run, hand type in every credit card every month. Mm-hmm. So then we wrote software for it. So we wrote on billing. I, I, I mean, yeah, I mean just everything like that. that 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 whole infrastructure wasn't there, uh, and so we had to kind of create that out of whole cloth. You know, I I, I don't think I've ever told this story on here before, but it, it wasn't that easy in '98 even when I when I started my first company, because I I, I you know I, I coded everything myself like it was total bootstrap. But the thing that I needed money for first was to get that credit card merchant account for the same for the same reasons why you had to put a certain amount down and you know I was a college kid so getting together five or ten thousand dollars or whatever it was was not was not exactly easy. But yeah, like just just basically the basic thing like billing your customers was was not easy at the beginning. No. I mean I mean I mean like I couldn't even rent a car at the time much less but that was not as bad as you know trying to get credit card processing and then and then like like all of these cause like credit card I mean, like, there just wasn't a model for it. And so that's why when kind of PayPal came out, as you know, it was a, uh, it, it was what kind of broke everything apart. You know, I mean, like like anyone could do, can, could take credit cards and have APIs and like that. And back then, that was not there. You know, we actually um, – if you wanted to do high-rate credit card transactions, you had to get what was called an X – an X25 lease line into one into a bank. Uh, we found a company that made PC-based credit card processing software, and you could have a modem in your PC and connect to it via a TCP socket and do a transaction. So we wrote a program that we had a, a rack of these servers, 20 of them, and it would balance credit card transactions across all 20. So we could do an aggregate, maybe about 10 transactions per um, 10 transactions per second, which you couldn't do at all. You know, like each one was like dial up process down. So we could keep these up and, you know, but so we, we had to write all that stuff. Now it's a dream, as you know. <laughs> So I'm I'm super curious about you know um 
I keep, I hope this isn't pejorative, but like mom and pop independent ISPs like you, like I said, there's, there's hundreds of them across the country. They tend to be regional. I, I remember there was one in, in, in Ann Arbor when I lived there in the yep. early 2000s. So if, if I am running one of these businesses like, like yours, mm-hmm. um, how big of a business can I get? Am I like, if I'm, can I get to like, 50,000 people paying me uh, $20 a month for, for internet access? Like how, how big of a business could this become? Sure. So I think, so Phoenix was a great market in the fact that um, at the time we had uh, Phoenix, the Phoenix market, uh, although Phoenix is like a pond where there's nothing the, beyond the Phoenix area here, like Tempe, Phoenix, Mesa, the, <clears throat> uh, you know, uh, there's nothing for like 100 to 200 miles, maybe more, right? Uh, so we're isolated. But it had one calling plan. So you could cut, dial any – so there was like about a, like I think 3 million people who could dial into my service for free. Without, okay? without paying long-distance charges. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and that was new since like that changed before 91. Even down within Phoenix, they had – three prefixes you would have to pay from going from phoenix to phoenix to scottsdale something like that you know um but then in right before we started a year it was one flat calling thing right so so for us the potential was you know what you said up to maybe uh 40 40 or fifty thousand. um one of my competition here um, Prime Net, I think, got in Phoenix at least up to twenty five thousand. We got up to, I think, six thousand. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you know, we made some uh, some choices of how we dealt with the phone company. I, I think Prime Net um, did a good job of recognizing how horrible the telcos were and made some really good choices about um, how uh, how to deal with the deficiencies of dealing with the bell companies right uh so i think they got up to twenty five thousand, but i think our peak was six to seven thousand dial people um and 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 you know and i think we probably could have went higher you know uh if but we the problem at the time before we thought that dial wasn't where it was at um you know we were getting a dot one phone line at a time or buying them in bundles, like individual phone lines and having a modem on the end of that. Uh, and it's just a crazy way to go, you know, um, that it, it was very hard to scale. There were companies that before they went on to where they would get T ones and, you know, have it be more of a, more, uh, more of a, more of a, more of a way to have it go farther. Um, you know, we did it that way. And so, to answer your question, probably in a market, if you stayed within your city, probably 20,000 would be around where you would be at if you were peak, right? Does that help? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, – and, and I want to come back and, and we'll, we'll uh, talk about your, your specific strategy uh, uh, when we wrap up here. But so if, this, if it's this fragmented system all around the country, really, really regional-based um, – so it would seem logical to me that uh, someone would want to come along and roll all of these small players up and, and sort of conglomerate it. And um, uh, I'm guessing that that began to happen uh, towards the end of the 90s. 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, so, um, what, 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 what happened for me personally, um, in 95, early 95, late 94, I, uh, my company was asked to provide internet, um, connectivity to an IEEE conference happening here in Arizona. Um, and so all, all like during breaks, all these engineers could kind of come in and could, um, you know, check the internet and you know, I'm sorry, check their email. Mm-hmm. And, and I, uh, during one of the, one of the things they showed during this thing was internet over cable, um, which I'd heard about, but never really saw. And I saw it. And what they showed is they had a cable head end they brought in and they had a windows computer and they had AOL client 2.5, a, uh, a, it was a modified version going over the internet on cable, and it was incredibly fast. I mean, it, it was like, you know, it was like boom on doing what? I mean, it it was amazing. I'm like, we're screwed. Like, <laughs> that's when I knew we got to get out. Like, even if we do well, you know, there's a few more years left. There's no way we'll be able to compete against this so you're and saying so, even even by 95 right when things are really starting to take off you can already see the writing on the wall and you know that this is a sort of a, a limited engagement that a gig that you can do here yeah well at least for that for access to the right, internet right. like you know it just seemed i mean it was such a dramatic you know i use it all the even in my office it was like you know which we had a we had a the 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 internet they showed in this modified AOL client, it was like, I was like, it was like, I, I got ill, but you know, just, it was just amazingly fast. And so at that point, you combine that with how we were getting screwed by the phone company in every which way, like, you know, they wouldn't do email with us. They wouldn't fax us. Everything was, everything was of the phone and they would go months without, I, I mean, it, you know, just, and, it, and you talk to any other mom pop ISP and probably half of their complaints is being mistreated by Verizon or whoever they, they were called back then or Pac Bell or whoever their bell carrier was, they didn't give a crap about us at all. You know? Um, and, and so between seeing that and being, you know, we're like, there's gotta be a, there, there has to be a different way. And then at, at the same point, every mom and pop ISP was being approached by local companies and how to get on the internet like every every one of them saw that and had that that pressure so at at the time that we're starting to do this stuff more and more companies are wanting to co-locate their servers in our office to have a their own web server or email server or whatever right and so our office is starting to fill up with all these boxes of people's uh people's servers and it was or they would want to have us buy the server and and like lease it back to them and it became this this kind of mess so that's where you know the thing that 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 we did is we created the first virtual hosting whereas your where you could have a a, a name like you know indirect.com email ftp pop server all you know all that stuff and not have your own server, like have it be on a shared server. And it was basically that demo and our problems with the phone company. You go, you know, this is something where we can control more the the forces 
you know, we don't have to wait on on you. We don't have to wait on U.S. West to to uh, give us more phone lines and we can have customers all over the world. So so that's how we kind of we, we were happily forced into that, I guess. Right. So even though for for our purposes, we've been focusing on like, you know, providing an ISP for consumers. For your company specifically, you make the strategic choice to focus on getting businesses online and, and providing this this virtual hosting because then you can control your own destiny. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and I think that when you talk to other, other companies uh, that did the same thing, every one of them, you know, what was nice was is any – and what is, by the way, a, a company per se? Like you even had these little small people just doing – uh, people doing consulting out of their house, people who were attorneys, whatnot. Everyone, when they wanted to get onto the internet, they would call up these small ISPs to get get their advice on how how to do it. Right? I mean, like they had really had no like you couldn't call up like AOL and get get like how do I start to use email right now? So you know, like we always had things where people could come down to our office and just get training. Uh, you know, could just talk to us. You know, I mean, it was a very genius bar type thing. You know, um, <laughs> yeah. you know where where people, you know, we had customers would come down, hang in our office every day, um, and you know would just start to help us sometimes. You know, you know, like so, so you know, uh, and and that kind of grew into if those people had any kind of idea for a company, you know, they they would kind of seek our counsel on that, I guess. Right. Just having the knowledge of, of how to do internet was so valuable in those days that, that, that that's half your business basically. Exactly. You know, it, it was very, um, I mean, it had a very, a very, uh, community feel. So one thing I have to say is, so when we started, uh, we started a Usenet group called alt, uh, internet director or something like that. Um, and so our customers could go in and talk to each other. And as soon as we started, we immediately, almost immediately started, we had a, a pop, a set of phone modems in Tucson. So I don't know if you know anything about the, the state. Phoenix is the big city and mm -hmm. Tucson Down is the, the smaller one. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, but people from Tucson hate people from Phoenix uh, or, or, or <laughs> like hate Phoenix. Uh -huh. Um, and now, now it's funny is so I got my start. You know, I went to the the U of A is in is in is in Tucson. So a lot of my the whole reason for this is my experience there. So I wanted to open up a pop there, and people and so and we don't forget we had a we had a slow line going from uh going from Palo Alto to Phoenix, and then we had a shared Phoenix K line between Phoenix and Tucson, and we had phone modem so the quality was kind of spotty so people on in tucson would go in on our board because all of our customers could see it and they'd say these super rich people from phoenix they think they can come in and you know push us tucson people around and and then i had to go on and say no i love tucson i went to school in tucson my wife's gonna be from you know us you know but what's interesting though is getting that community feedback it was this is one of the first types of which now you 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 see it on, on like everything but where customers could talk to each other like if you have a problem with anything back then aside from being an isp you would have to pick it or something you know 
But here, there was a form that every customer was on, and they could talk to each other saying, hey, I couldn't get on, you know, you know, like the quality of the phone line was horrible. And they go, yeah, mm -hmm. you know, same here. And so people could kind of talk, and we'd have to kind of get involved. And, you know, uh, if customers were unhappy for our fault or not, we heard about it, and everyone else did, you know? Yeah, it's the the social media lynch mobs that are so common now. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 you know, it was overall I'm glad about. It. I mean, like it helped us improve, I would say. I mean, it it was annoying to have to deal with it, but but I think it was healthy and I'm still a fan of it. But when you're right in the in the heart of that, it really does suck, for sure. Yeah. Um okay, so uh you your company does eventually get acquired by um by Mindspring, which later becomes Earthlink, and I think you, you sold off like the, the consumer dial-up business before that. But just briefly, um, tell me about um, uh, getting acquired, and I think you, you, you end up working at Earthlink for several years? Sure, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so so uh, so we had sold our dial-ups to, to a company here in town in 96, um, and and they got bought by like they eventually got bought by Windstar and which you know which was a big um telco but then we did our web we did our web hosting stuff and in 98 um we sold to Mindspring um uh, it in um your question was what about that i'm sorry again well just uh why did you sell um oh, oh. Uh, what were they actually I'm, i am curious about mindspring slash earthlink because i feel like i haven't we haven't really talked about them at all so just generally your impressions of them as a company your time there that sort of thing great yeah so mindspring when we were talking to them they were on a they had just gone public i believe and they were acquiring regional that whole thing that you're saying all those mom and pops they were acquiring big and small ones. So they bought Pipeline, which I think you've talked about on, on this podcast. They bought SpryNet right after us. Uh, you know, they were acquiring and they were not using any of their infrastructure, really, mostly not. And just taking their their specialty was taking those subscribers and, and converting them into their infrastructure, their billing. Like they had billing down. They had, you know, they, they and and I would say MindSpring. So you asked me about that company was an amazing company. I mean, um, you know, so you know how I started my company uh, when I was young and mm -hmm. I think, you know, how you go like, you know, like what is some advice that you would give to people when, you know, like when they do a company now? Well, people have a lot of avenues to read about how to do a company now, right? I would say, you know, I was young, didn't even graduate from college. Technically, I was fine. Like about the, the technology I had down and my partners did, right? It was the legal framework of creating a company that that screwed us. So very, very early on, and, and this is true with a lot of ISPs, but us in particular, uh, when we one of my in one of my main investors, when he, he we, we we used his, we used his attorney to uh, to create our corporation, and there was a thing in our bylaws where you had to have a hundred percent shareholder approval to do anything big. Right, which is crazy. Yeah, he didn't notice it, and he dies of brain cancer three months later. This freak thing, just, and so we have this thing where we don't know what his intent was or anything, and it, and so we did all this kind of great stuff in four years, but we were legally hobbled, so we couldn't get 
investment easily because no one wants to invest in a company that can't change them, you know, you know what I'm saying? So, so when MySpring came along, we had gotten things together where they had a good deal where everyone who had invested was relatively happy with the deal. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was kind of our way out. Um, so as for MySpring itself, uh, the terms of deal were okay, but they were a great company. Um, the guy, uh, Charles Brewer, who started it, and and the guy who was the president, Mike Hickory, great people. M Mike especially was just, I mean, any company that I've ever been, that I've ran since then or, ha or I have been a part of, I model, he's been like the guy. Like back then at, as you know, no one focused on being a profitable company. Like you were like quaint. MySpring focused on that. They focused on the, they had core values and beliefs like, like, uh, and they just ran a great ship and every, and they organically grew their, their, their staff. So people would start out in, in the call center and would kind of grow up. So they didn't go out to all these big telcos and find people. They grew their staff. So it was a great company and they grew through both organically. They're from the South from, and they, acquired a lot and they did a great job of onboarding employees um every all of my employees they kept they treated well right and it, and it was a great experience um and it it and they you know i was so used to running my own ship and i thought when i went there that i wouldn't like it because i wouldn't be in charge but it, it was great um then earthlink they merged uh what 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 happened was is this is towards the dot-com bus which you mm -hmm. covered uh MySpring had offers from like Microsoft, I think for $5 billion. Uh, and they had an offer from Gateway for billions of dollars, right? And we're like, and no one was a fan of either company, but like, that's great. And, you know, Microsoft, you know, sure we hate them, but we'll learn to love it. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But, but the CEO chose not to do it for some reason. And then that com happened and all those big offers went away mm -hmm. and so then uh earthlink and mindspring uh they were weirdly uh the same subscriber count mm. started with started with started within a month of each other in 1994 i mean they had all these on paper they were the same right mm -hmm. so they merged but the way that they, they were ran was oil and water, right? And so that is, and so so th they merged. No one was really. They changed the name to Earthlink, but the management was MySpring. But there was resistance up and down, and it was a very sad end. So MySpring for about two years was like an amazing experience that I wouldn't trade for. I mean, it was as exciting as running my own company, right? Mm -hmm. And then when they merged, uh, it was a very Sad. I mean, I met a lot of great people from Earthlink when they merged, but the overall merger was a disaster. Uh, and 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 they never really regained. Like they had so many opportunities to go all these. You know, they had between the two companies millions of dollars per month in re reoccurring income that they could build. They could have built all these nice web services like you know like a portal. Blah, blah, you know, and they did all that stuff, but it was never. It was always not the best quality right and they just blew the opportunity they had all this income to to build all these great things uh and it did never come to 
tuition. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, yeah. but, 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 you know, um, but my spring institution was just an amazing place for sure. Well, uh, to, to wrap it up here a little bit, you know, if, if you read these stories of, of any ISP, of AOL, of, of the independence of, of Earthlink, um, and you're looking back on it 20 years later, you're thinking to yourself, well, of course, uh, that was all going to go away. The, the, the fattest pipes into anyone's home are, are owned by either a, a phone company or a cable company. Uh, surely everyone knew this was was a limited time thing eventually to be supplanted by by broadband but is that true like did, did you all feel that way at the time that okay eventually uh, it's going to be broadband and and this sort of dial-up thing will go away or, or do you feel like that there could have been an alternative uh, universe where there are different sorts of ISPs and, and independent ISPs and and people other than your cable or your phone company giving you internet yeah, so I mean, I uh, I think at some point everyone kind of believed that and were jockeying the jockeying themselves to be bought. And, and then for a while, and I was out of it by then, but I a lot of friends are still in the ISP biz. You could be an ISP, a mom and pop, and resell. I um, re, excuse me, resell DSL line. So. I don't think a lot of people have that now, but you know there you know there was a mandate from from the FCC where telcos had to provide you raw ISDN, right? And so you could provide broadband as a mom and pop ISP. And at some point, the ISPs didn't cooperate very well, and they closed up that requirement during the Bush administration, I believe. Um, but for a while there, it looked like after I got out, but my friends were in there still, that there was a possibility, right? Um, but you know uh, that that you know uh, that that was very short lived too. Um, so, but I think, and my early my early view of that uh, of that technical demonstration was still not like. I, people didn't feel that way probably for another two years, I would say. Like from – I would say at, at least until maybe 99 mm-hmm. in, in 2000, even when cable was first – I mean cable had a slow – I mean like cable internet wasn't really prevalent, I would say, really until 2000 anyways. You know, mm-hmm. you know from up, up until 2000, I think – things looked pretty good for ISPs, right? I, I mean, like MySpring, for instance, you know, they were growing, you know, when they couldn't, when MySpring couldn't get their broadband thing off the ground, really, that's when things kind of like fall apart. But I would say, you know, um, you know, the smart ISPs were in the game until 2000, I would say. Well, um, to wrap up, I, I, you know, we've briefly talked before, um, and you know, I'm looking at your LinkedIn page, so I can I can tell that um, you you've stayed in, in tech generally. Um, but as I'm thinking back on on the story you've told here and how you sort of accidentally start this business out of college or whatever, and and it's almost like you're you're creating a business uh, on the internet before anyone even knows uh, that the internet can be something that you can build a business around. Um, I think I've asked other people this, but um, I'm curious. Do you think that there's maybe a value to not knowing what's not possible <laughs> when you're starting a business? Like if you know the things that you shouldn't be able to do, maybe you don't even do it. Is there some value to entrepreneurs 
sort of going into things blindly and stupidly because that's almost that's almost how you have to do it to succeed maybe i mean absolutely so you know i've i've heard a lot of people here on your podcast talk about you know I'm the gray beard guy now, you know, blah, blah, blah. And for sure, I, I mean, like the, um, you know, uh, what I did not know, I mean, I did not know what I, I did. I mean, I totally underestimated the business side of it, right? Uh, but I think that was good. Like maybe if I had known a lot of stuff, like I, I probably some things would have helped overall, you know, um, uh, that belief that it could be done, made it done. I, I mean, like, you know what's funny is my kind of tenure of running my own ISP was like four years, and we got so much done. I mean, even crippled by all these things, all the software that we wrote, and growing a business, and and like doing all this stuff. I mean, I look at my past four years now, and it's I feel like I'm a slacker now. You know what I'm saying? I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's just you know, I, I mean, like just the incredible productivity and wrangling. You know, I'm a 22. I started when I was 22 years old. To, to 26, how I people work for me who were three times my age, you know, um, and wrangling these people to do to create awesome stuff and, and like both write software and run a service and all these things in between and then sell it, you know, um, you know, uh, now I just know too much that I probably wouldn't take those chances. I mean, you know, and, and you know, I have, you know, kids or I, I, I have a son that's about that age now, you know, who he would be, you know, and I hope he takes those chances when he's young to do something like that. And now there's so much, as you know, infrastructure to do it, you know, it's, a, it's a lot less risk, you know? Um, so it's really just your time and effort. So, uh, yeah, I, yeah. So, so to, to answer your question, um, definitely not knowing stuff, uh, you know, it, it, it caused me some pain, but I wouldn't have done it in the first place. And, and that would have been the real bad thing I'd say. So the, the lesson is, is just, just do it. Just take the, take the gamble. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, uh, Michael March, thank you so much for, um, uh, telling that story. And, and I've been, as I said to you, I've been trying to get someone to tell me the story of, of independent ISPs and, and really the, the history of, of, of how Americans, uh, got on the internet in the first place. So, so thanks for sharing all that for us. Thank you. Yeah. Brian here, cutting in to add an additional item. Michael also had a fascinating story to share about the birth of online spam that he was at least tangentially connected to. But, and this is entirely my fault, somehow we forgot to get into that little story in our conversation. So Michael was kind enough to record the story and send it over to me, which I will post here. The brief story about the beginnings of online spam that Internet Direct was unwittingly connected to. Okay, this is a quick summary of the green card lottery incident. So here we go. So um, the, the summary of the event is this. On April 12th of 1994... Lawrence Cantor and Martha Siegel, uh, they executed a script that they had written by some local contractor here in Phoenix. Uh, and that script, basically, it took one message, and that and the summary of that message is, hey, people of the world, there's a pending U.S. green card lottery. 
if you want in, contact us. So that's what the gist of it was. And they posted that same identical message to 6,000 plus uh, Usenet groups. And uh, so first I'm going to say is, so that's what happened on our service. Um, they did it through us, but this was not their first incident um, of doing this. Uh, they manually, I think, spammed hundreds or maybe up to a thousand groups from a ISP based in California called Netcom. And uh, they did it from there and they got into some, uh, some small trouble there. And from what I understand, they were not fond of paying long distance fees to call up them. So I guess when they want to do their big splash, they pick someone here in Arizona, yay local, and they, uh, you know, they chose us, I guess, to do that. And so a week before that incident, uh, they came in, they asked to speak to, 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 to us. And, and so, and I just want to say that at the time, you know, being, you know, the first dial-up ISP in Arizona, uh, we had a lot of people coming into our doors to tell us and pitch their current business or their future business and how they can get it in working on the Internet. So we were having these meetings all the time, people coming in, uh, pitching their, you know, either things ranging from their, if they were attorneys, which had a lot of those, to, uh, you know, um, uh, people with their new multi multi-level marketing scheme whatever it was we had a lot of that those meetings going on so this was not an out of the ordinary type uh type of event um and with all with anyone that that we met with we always tried to educate them on the general guiding principles of the internet and make best choices when they you know at the time doing commerce on the internet was new so we try to make people mindful of the culture and the technical uh ways to do things on the internet Anyway, so they met with my business manager at the time, Bill Fisher, and and Bill went through, went with them through our terms of service. And as they started to pitch to him what they wanted to do, or as it became clear, Bill brought me in, and uh, and they kind of did to me a quick pitch. And I again, you know, at the time I was teaching a class about I think twice a month, or maybe even more often than that, about the internet and how to use it. And I focused on the Usenet, and I kind of explained the technical details about how when you post a message in a group, that message gets copied to every other server, and that can cost the other um, the other servers uh, it costs some storage and transmission costs and all these things. And and I try to make them mindful that you know not only is there a culture where you're supposed to stay, where you're supposed to stay on topic in each of the 6,000 Usenet groups? But there was a cost component that maybe they weren't paying, but everyone else was paying. Uh, and they really did not care. Uh, they just want to know uh, if our servers could handle doing this script, and they want to know if we would stop them or not. And, not, and I told them, and both Bill and I told them, we, we don't pre-censor our customers and if they're short of doing anything illegal we don't stop anything but we highly encourage them not to do it and we had other customers had kind of pitched us the same thing before and when we gave them these warnings they didn't do it um well uh they had left and a few days later uh they actually executed it and all hell broke loose um and um uh you know we got 
calls. We got thousands of calls. You know, our email servers crashed, um, and uh, we shut them down. Uh, we actually saw where this event kind of violated their terms of service, and we shut them all down. So, um, uh, and they tried to get, uh, they had their, their attorneys contact us to get all their emails and we denied that and that was it. Um, and so that was part of, we were unfortunately wrapped up with their 15 minutes of like their 15 minutes of infamy. Um, and, uh, and, uh, it's interesting by the way, it, if, 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 if you read their book that they wrote shortly afterwards called How to Make a Fortune on the Super Information Highway, uh, their recap of this event is actually pretty accurate. Uh, the things I told you now are pretty much what they say, um, but their interpretation of everything is very askew. You know, they really did not care about Internet culture. They didn't care about costs that it, other people would incur. They only were worried about what costs they would incur. It's a very very selfish point of view um and just a quick postscript to that uh that later that year they started a company called uh, excuse me a company called um cybercell to help people sell things on the internet and we registered the domain name cybercell.com and uh they tried to sue us to get it and we refused and so they never got that name and that was our little thumb in their eye kind of thing. So that's it. And uh, I hope that uh, explains it. And uh, talk to you guys later. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod, and my personal Twitter is at brianmcc. Thanks for listening. <laughs>